Well, good evening. Thank you for coming out tonight. We're excited. Pete is uh, he's on the glide path to uh, the, the end of our study here. And uh, tonight we'll have um, a meeting, um, Seven Churches of the Apocalypse, and then next week we'll have another. And that'll be the end of it because we'll have done seven churches, and that's all there is, seven churches. <laughs> Can't help you out after that. Okay. We'll take yeah, we'll take a vote. Let's take a vote on that. <laughs> um this morning, uh that was a a real highlight that that uh, choir piece this morning and my duet that I did with Rachel. Um and uh I some of you have asked about the that list of uh, references to the Old Testament. They're up here. And you can pick one of those up after the service. And then uh, Pete has graciously uh, given us permission to have his slides for this uh, for this study. So I have some the slides up here that you can pick up afterwards. And there's more being made in the back. So afterwards we'll have even more than this. So... Um, I think we ought to get started. Why don't we pray and we'll get started. God, thank you for tonight and for your scriptures. Thank you for Pete and the hard work he's put into preparing uh, both himself and this series of lectures uh, for us tonight. Pray that we would have open hearts and open minds. We pray that you would um, hide your scripture deep in our hearts. And we'll thank you and praise you for all you are and all you do. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Gordon? Yes, sir. I'm really glad that uh, you had a voice for your duet this morning. Um, I'm really fortunate that I get to do the songs that I want to do. <laughs> but um, I hope there are songs that you want to do, too. And uh, there's a wonderful song that I just had going over in my head over and over this afternoon and we don't have words for you because it should be something that's in our hearts so um, it's called how great is our god y'all know it right i'll feed you the words would you stand please How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great. How great is our God. Again. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great. Our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. The splendor of the King, the splendor of the King, clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. 
He wraps himself in light. And darkness tries to hide. And darkness tries to hide. And trembles. And trembles at his voice. And trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great. How great is our God. Age to age. Age to age he stands. And time is in his hands. Beginning and the end. Beginning and the end. The God had three in one. Father's Son, the, the lion and the lamb, the lion and the lamb. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Thank you so much for being with us tonight as we do another of our studies of the seven churches of the apocalypse. As you heard, uh, notes are being made. So these will take us, what you're getting tonight, up through last week. And then, Lord willing, when we come together next time, I hope I have all the rest of them ready and we can give you a full set for your future reflection and studies if you're so inclined. So, as you know, we go through a fast review so we can remember the background on all of these things that are important for us uh, to remember as we think about the uh, study. So, first of all, the important places, we're looking at Asia Minor. This is where there were real seven churches in history. Uh, Paul had written to churches, obviously, all across the ancient Greco-Roman world. And uh, right there where you see Ephesus and Colossae together, that would basically be the same Ephesus to the first of the seven uh, epistles from Christ, the risen Christ, his church. And Colossae is right near where we would find the church to Laodicea, which would have been the last of the seven churches. So you can see there's an overlap and a region for where Paul's uh, writings are with the churches in Asia Minor. Now further, as we look at the map, we can see that uh, the cities are going on a northerly to a... Uh, southeasterly route. Ephesus is the first one going north is Smyrna, Pergamum, and south. Uh, we noted that the geography has an 
aspect of where these cities are. They're all interconnected, but the intention was to go in this pattern. They are listed as seven churches, and they are numbered in this pattern. And so Christ, as he uh, reports his message that he has for the churches through the angel to John, to the written form from the apostle, uh, comes from Patmos and then to Ephesus, which is the first city that he can reach. Patmos, you remember, is a prison island about 40 miles uh, off the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. Uh, we've emphasized that seven has a profoundly important symbolism in the, in the book of Revelation, reflecting a theme that we find elsewhere in the Bible, uh, going back to creation itself. So creation to consummation, seven days of creation, the seven finals of finals of final things, wrapping up God's purposes in history. And so the seven churches have seven letters and each has seven parts, suggesting then this idea that they are reflective of a constellation of meaning. They all belong together. And we said that with the seven stars in the Lord's hand and the symbol of Revelation 1, uh, we remember there were the seven stars of the Pleiades. It was an idea that was already known even in the cosmology and cosmography of the ancient world. Uh, we noted that uh, there is a specific unfolding of Christ on the Isle of Patmos. Heaven opens up to John who is uh, holding up in a place that's very, very uh, humble, uh, probably very difficult to live in, and yet the glories of heaven are sent to him there and then communicated to the world. Quite a remarkable story. We've talked about some overviews. Uh, one of the things I've tried to emphasize then is that these seven churches, in my understanding of the book, represent the fullness, the sevenness of God's concern through Christ for his churches throughout the ages in all places. In approaching the book this way, these letters in this way, I'm not following the pattern that many have taught that this is an unfolding of church history. It is not seven ages of church history. The biggest problem with that is that the dead church we're talking about tonight would be the Reformation Church, which was anything but dead. But also I would suggest the problem is there probably, if the Lord tarries, going to be more than seven ages of the church's history. The church is going to continue to develop, and we're going to run out of churches to explain it. The system itself is not defensible for many reasons. The most important one is that there's nothing in the text that says we should interpret the passages as epics of church history. There seems to be everything in the text that suggests they were real local churches with real problems, and because what was written to the local church back then represents the mind and will of God in Christ, they have abiding significance in all ages. And so... Why are they the seven representative churches? Well, because the kind of issues they're dealing with are perpetually issues churches deal with regularly, everywhere, as they develop and struggle and grow. Christ is walking in the middle of the seven candlesticks. The significance is Christ is the new temple. Remember the seven candles, of the candlestick in the temple. Christ now is seeing the church as an expression of the light of the new temple. He is the risen temple. Destroy this body in three days, I will raise it again. He is the temple of the resurrection, shining the light of the gospel into the world. There's a lot that we could talk again about how God's word is brought to the earth, 
You can learn that. This is not for now. That was our first sense. Also, the idea of a connectional church. These churches are not viewed as independent churches that have no interest in each other. We have many independent, isolated churches. That is one theory of church government. We do not find that in the churches that Christ is concerned with. They are all to listen to one another, what Christ is saying to the churches. They are all interdependent. They are to care for their common witness. That connectionalism uh, suggests then something of a united church with many local expressions. Uh, different denominations see that in different ways, but that certainly is one of the things we can derive from this. We notice then that the seven letters have seven parts, and we've been looking at each of them with their distinctive expression. There's a commission, or a, a call, a, an introduction, a salutation, down to an exhortation and challenge, and we'll look at those again. The seven churches we've described as first Ephesus, the church that is both orthodox, but it's lost its first love. This is a very powerful image of what happens to a successful growing church has had spiritual blessings and they begin to lose their passion for the lost and reaching out in that powerful love for Christ. We just begin to do what we do because it's what we do. It's our habit. It's our tradition instead of the vital life. The church in Smyrna represents a church that there's no criticism by Christ for. It is the persecuted church. And Jesus said there will be persecution wherever the gospel goes. And that makes sense because Jesus said, if they, they hated me, the world will hate you because you love me. You're standing for the things I hold for. The church in Pergamum, the third one, remember we're going straight north. We have Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. This now is the church that has a great deal of biblical character, but it has at its core a problem with an excessive, unaddressed sexual sin in its midst. And we talked about how churches today have that same problem. They have a great witness, but they have issues of carnality and sexuality that are not being addressed. The sexually impure church. And then we go to Thyatira, beginning the movement southeasterly. Now, this is the church of Thyatira, and here we find a church that is totally compromised with the world. It has no distinction between the things of God and the things of culture. It is a cultural church, it is a churchly culture, and they are indistinguishable. They're mixing it up, saying we should just be like it, we should just blend in. No difference between the church and culture. It's the compromising church. These are the ones we've looked at so far. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the church of Sardis. And as you see the picture, it's a church that's beginning to go under. It's sinking. It's the church that's dead, the dead church. And then we're going to look at the Philadelphia church, the little church. It's weak, but it has great opportunity. It's small, but faithful. Those will be the two we're looking at. Now, as we've done these churches... Uh, you'll remember that uh, as we think about them, that each of them with their expression have common ex uh, examples today. So as we looked at the church at Ephesus, which we will not have time to review tonight, I said that we can find these kind of orthodox churches that have lost their first love in great places like Westminster Seminary, my seminary. We have 90 years of doing the right thing, standing for the right thing, but do we still have the passion to reach the lost and love Christ as we ought? That's an ever-growing concern. 
I mentioned other examples like evangelism explosion that's almost quiet in America where once it was reaching millions of people. Uh, Christian ministry after great revivals. We can see this in different contexts around the world. And so we need to be aware of that. Now, when we looked at the church in Smyrna, a church that is facing persecution, their great hero was Polycarp. Polycarp was a, a faithful witness right to the end. The word martyr in Greek means a witness. So one in our word, martyr meaning one who witnesses right unto death. He does not compromise. And we can find persecuted churches all around the world. I told you some stories of uh, Hong Kong, Nigeria, Indonesia, uh, examples in the U.S., Palestinian churches, China, and North Korea. Uh, there are many examples. Uh, then we looked at the Pergamum church, again, a, a remarkable place of struggling with sexual sin. We said, do we see this today? Of course. The Roman Catholic Church, as it's being viewed globally, is struggling with harboring sexual predators in the midst of their life. Sadly, the recent story of the Southern Baptist Church in Houston with, that made front pages and news across the country, struggling with not dealing with these problems within their clergy. I had to say it's even in the Presbyterian tradition. The uh, Free Church of Scotland had a tragic story of a minister who was involved in multiple affairs and then hung himself in the scandal just shook the church, a church that has a deep biblical basis. We now need to have churches that are taking extra care to protect their children and their youth from predators who use the church to advantage their own purposes. Counseling cases are replete where sexual abuse has gone on unaddressed in churches sometimes for years. We need to realize these kind of church issues and churches exist today. We also talked about Thyatira, the compromising church. Again, we cannot review all that was said in those letters, but to give examples of those kind of churches we find all around us, I appeal to the three self-church in China, where Chairman Xi is literally rewriting the Bible, where the Bible will only be printed by the Chinese government for the church, and it will have what the Chinese communist government wants the Bible to say. Can you imagine a more compromised church than the three self-church that's going to be preaching out of a communist-inspired Bible? That is on the horizon. The mainline churches that many of us have been associated with. Uh, we might think about how many mainline churches are indistinguishable from what's going on in culture. Whatever the front avant-garde is doing in the culture, it's being embraced and celebrated. And we've seen, for example, great separation from churches like the a global Anglican fellowship that's striving to remain pure in a church that's lost its way, where Anglican churches are now linking with African bishops because they say this is the only way we can keep a biblically distinct Christianity from a culture that's moving ever more and more away from the Bible. We can see it in the youth churches, the emergent churches, not teaching the things that people don't want to hear, just the, the fun things the positive things of Christianity, not the hard words of repentance and holiness and godliness. We can see it in the American military chaplain where the name of Christ is being prohibited in prayers, where all sorts of Christian teaching is being attacked and our chaplains are struggling to maintain godly witness in this context. Uh, there's so many examples, and I list many. We didn't talk about them, 
but we could go through weeks on end of studying how the culture is attacking classic Christian truth and how churches are capitulating, say, well, we better give up on that so we can be liked by the world. Maybe we should compromise here so things will be better. It's all around us, and this is an issue that we have to address. Now, so what we're looking at tonight now, we'll slow down with that rapid overview of where we've been over the last Sundays, is to talk about the church in Sardis. I call this the dead church. It's the church that looks very much like a church, but there's no gospel witness left there. It has all the marks of a church, worship and liturgy, might have organs and ministers, buildings, all kinds of activities, but there's nothing of the gospel. We begin to think about Sardis. As you look at the picture, Sardis was a city on a mountain, seemingly alive, but it was in a spiritual coma, and so essentially dead. Now we want to pause there as we begin to look at the actual language of uh, what the scriptures say in Revelation about the church in Sardis we realize that in the ancient world, if a person went into a coma, they essentially were going to die unless they woke up. Why? Because there was no modern medicine. How could you feed them? How could you provide water for them? How could you care for their needs? If they didn't wake up, they would eventually die. There was no intravenous fluid, no tube feedings. There was no medical intervention available. And so the image of a church that's dead, but not quite dead, is the image of what we find in this church of Sardis. They are dead, but they're still alive. But if they don't wake up, they will be dead. It's an interesting picture. Now, as we look at this image, you can see that it's on a high plateau. It had walls around it, a very secure, powerful-looking place. Uh, the church at Sardis then was in a very wealthy city. Uh, it was one of the places where silver and gold were discovered and coins as we know them began to be developed way back then. So going back into antiquity, it was a wealthy place. It had all the things going for it, but as we look at that image there, that's what's left to the city of Sardis and that building in the front is a broken down Byzantine church. Now, that was a church in, in the early Christian era but all that's left there today is rubble. It's that there is no living church in Sardis. As we try to tell the story then, we remember there has seven parts. We're going to look at each of them. So what do we find as we look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6? I'm quoting here in each of these parts from the ESV, the English Standard Version. The commissioner salutation, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, Again, we remember the word angel could be a heavenly messenger. It could be an earthly messenger, a minister, one who receives the letter and now is carrying it to the church. The second part of each of the letters has a characteristic or quality from Christ from the first chapter of the book of Revelation. In our first lessons, we read that chapter so we could see how Christ is described and the vision that John sees of him. And an element from that vision and another part sometimes of the rest of the book of Revelation is taken because it's relevant in some way for this church and its message. So here in verse 1, it's the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. 
Now, we might ask the question, why would the church in Sardis, this church that's going to be described as the dead church that's not quite dead, but it's dead. It's in that stage of ending its life. Why these things? Well, first of all, the word spirit in the Bible suggests life, doesn't it? He breathed into him, and man became a breathing, living being. Uh, we think about the spirit in the valley of the bones. The preaching of the word brings life, and there's resurrection. There's a fullness of the spirit that Christ has that can raise the dead to life, put real spiritual breath into them. The seven stars means that Christ has concern even for this church. The dead church is not outside of his concern. It's all of the churches that are his concern, even those that have lost their life. He wants to see resurrection. It's a great line that has been said, uh, the... Uh, a report of the death of Christianity has been given multiple times through history, and it's always wrong because they don't understand that the founder of Christianity knows how to rise from the dead. That's G.K. Chesterton. Dead churches can be raised to life when the Word and the Spirit return. Okay, So this is the issue. Now, what's the commendation? Well, in this church, it's hard to find a commendation. It's almost a concession that's made in the correction that's given. This comes from verse 4, which we'll come to in a moment. There is something that the Lord says. He says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The point is, even in a church that as far as we can tell is dead, the Lord still has those that are His. Do you remember that picture? I am the only one left, says Elijah. The Lord says, no, I've kept to myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul will say, this is on the foundation of the Lord. The Lord knows them that are his. There's still some. Even in a church, as far as we know, has no spiritual life. God has his people. And that's part of the hope that we have because it is a dead church, but it is not totally impossible to be raised. God has people there. Now, here's the condemnation. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Do you see? You're dead. You're supposed to be alive. The world thinks you're alive, but spiritually you're dead. The gospel's not at work here. But don't let everything die. There's still something here. So this is the coma state, a church that's going through the motions. But the gospel has been replaced by everything else than Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him raised. We might stop and think about what a danger that is to, today with churches that once were gospel-centered that now are therapy-centered, just counseling all the time. Or practical advice on how to have your best life now will just keep you smiling and keep you happy. Psychological health. There's no gospel preaching left it looks alive but it's dead because the gospel is absent the Lord looks at this terminally comatose church and says you must awake he says wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God remember then what you've received and heard keep it and repent the Lord interestingly believes that preaching is okay to be given to dead people. Did you know those are the only kind of people that get saved? 
You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're made alive with Christ. We preach to the dead, and somehow in the preaching, in the teaching of the Bible, the Holy Spirit works and raises the dead to life. It's interesting, you may remember that story, the miracle of Jesus, where the the little girl was dead. They were grieving, and Jesus said, no, she's just sleeping. Well, when Jesus shows around, those that are dead are just sleeping. He can raise the dead. And that's what preaching of the Word of God does. It has the power to do what no human can do. But the Word of God is more than just human. It is human language. It is given by a human preacher. But when it is given authentically, it is joined with the Spirit. And the Spirit takes the Word like a sharp two-edged sword and pierces the heart and brings life out of the dead. Just like in the Valley of the Dry Bones, Ezekiel 37. So, What does a dead church need? It needs the gospel to be preached. It needs the Bible to be preached again. And they are to hear it. They are to remember what once brought the church into existence. It was the preaching of the Bible. It was the gospel. Rediscover what gave you your life, and life can come from the dead. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Let's go back for a moment and take a look at that city. A city that has that kind of a cliff and those kind of walls didn't have a lot to worry about. They said, we can sleep at night. No problems here. Nobody can get in. But guess what? On one evening while everybody was slumbering and sleeping, somebody came up this wall right here, found a crack in the wall, and invaded the city and conquered it. Jesus said, I'll come like a thief in the night and this church is going to disappear. You're slumbering. Remember the warning? Your candlestick will be moved from its place. So the image here then is you need to realize that what hour I will come is not known and so now is the time. You can't put it off. Do not delay. A dead church needs to hear the scriptures now. And yet, as we said, yet you have a still a few names in Sardis, people who have not just simply given up on the gospel. There's hope for them. So the challenge, the challenge and the exhortation or the challenge and the call, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. The Lord says, yes, there is a resurrection to come. And you will have eternal life. You will be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. How do you get white garments? They must be washed of their sin. And only the blood of Christ can wash them clean. When you have white garments by the gospel, when the gospel is preached, then you are seen to be in the living book of life. Those that are really members of the kingdom of heaven. And Christ says, I will confess you as my own family of faith before my Father and His angels. The gospel brings us into living relationship. Now, even though you may not be part of a dead church, you're part of at least an Ephesians church and maybe a Philadelphian church if you're a Bay Presbyterian church. But guess what? You need to hear this. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know why? Because the only way you get dead churches is by living churches that lose the gospel. That's where dead churches come from. It's when the church gives up on the central, foundational, 
unchangeable, immutable, uh, foundational truth that Christ alone is Savior. That is the essence. We can never outgrow that. We can never get beyond it. We cannot change that. The day we do that, we become a church that has fallen asleep and that will die. That's how essential it is to keep the gospel front and center. We must hear this. Do you have an ear to hear it? Okay, now, these kind of churches, Sardis churches, churches that seem alive but are essentially dead, uh, let's go through a few examples that came to mind. Uh, I've been to uh, three of or four of these ancient sites. I haven't made to all of them. I hope I can get there, but I've been to Ephesus, I've been to Smyrna, and I've been to Pergamum. And there's no Christian church in any of those places. All of those churches have lost their witness. Their candlestick has been moved. The seven churches of Asia Minor have all disappeared from life due to the Muslim conquest of Asia Minor. There was evidence of Christian life for maybe a century or two after this letter was brought to them. Maybe it continued on even until the 700s. But today there's no gospel witness left. Churches cease to exist and they die and only continue if Christians are willing to continue their witness and faithfulness. We can look at a vast period of time. Now, you may disagree with me on this, but when I look at the medieval era, that thousand-year period from about 600 to about 1500, much of the gospel was lost. The church looked like everything was the church. But you know what you couldn't find in the church? It was the Bible alone as the source of truth. You know what you couldn't find in the church? Christ alone as the Savior. Everyone else saved you but Jesus. The saints could save you, Mary could save you, the church could save you, but not the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ alone. No, it had to be added to. Uh, grace alone. Well, we talked about, but you have to earn things too. And God alone wasn't glorified. You had to kiss the ring of the Pope. You had to honor him. In fact, there was one declaration made unum sanctum, one of the great declarations of the high Middle Ages that said, you cannot be saved unless you believe in the Pope just as much as you believe in Jesus Christ. The Pope is your Savior. My goodness, think about all the people that said, I'm believing in Pope so-and-so to get to heaven instead of Jesus Christ as the Savior. Christ was suppressed. It was a gospel-less church for almost a thousand years, except for some forerunners of the Reformation. But the story goes on, even the Protestant movement. How many of us have traveled to Europe and seen some extraordinarily beautiful churches? You go on a Sunday and nobody's there. They're just museums. They're empty, beautiful. They're filled maybe for an organ recital or a concert. They're filled for some civic event. But when it comes to the study of the scriptures and worship, nobody goes. My experience, uh, I've been to Finland to lecture. That's my ethnic background, a beautiful state church. The gospel is essentially silent. In Zurich, the great place of Zwingli, there's a great cathedral that's there. It's a great historical center. But you might not ever hear the gospel there. You'll hear about social issues, but not the need of a Savior like Zwingli preached. 
And yes, you can go into Calvin's Geneva to the beautiful Saint-Pierre Cathedral, a magnificent old medieval church where Calvin preached. He preached multiple times a week there. Today you can go and you will not hear the gospel unless they let an evangelical group come in to preach. It will be World Council of Churches, social emphases, not the centrality of Christ. The gospel is so easy to lose for everything else. It must be kept central. Empty buildings, great cathedrals, they look alive, but there's no gospel there. What about our own experience across America? Are we becoming concerned as the churches begin to disappear? I've been in many places. I was in Scotland and London, where I saw where there were once churches that are now nightclubs, apartment buildings. There are places where there used to be churches and they've disappeared. They're empty. They're being repurposed because no one is going. We're facing a very serious time and this happens. I fundamentally believe it's true when we stop preaching the Bible, when we stop preaching the gospel, when we start trying to please the world, please the culture, be like them, when we try to work on our own self-interest rather than the things of God and the spirit of His Word, the church is going to disappear. There are Protestant pulpits in very beautiful active churches where you will not hear the message of salvation through Christ crucified and raised. This is something that the founder of Westminster saw almost a hundred years ago when he wrote his classic book, Christianity and Liberalism. In that book he described what the gospel is like in a church that he called the modernist church a church that's lost the gospel. It was something like this. I'm preaching today as a good pastor. I'm preaching to you all you wonderful people, pillars of our community, all you wonderful friends. And because you're so good, you'll really love Jesus who's so good because you're just like him. Let's all do what he did. Let's be kind to people. Let's make a difference in the world. Do you notice what you're not hearing? You're not hearing the word sin. You're not hearing the word judgment and death. You're not hearing the word mediator and atonement. You're not hearing the word substitute. You're not hearing the danger of an eternity without a Savior. Hell is no longer possible. We are all practical universalists. Everybody's good. Everybody's going to heaven. And the gospel that sounds so wonderful is a counterfeit. And it will bring the church not to life, but into death because it's the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection that keeps the church alive. Some examples, things to be concerned about. These are real. The ancient church, the medieval church, the post-Reformation modern church, the contemporary American experience, something that was seen as the modernist explosion of we're going to be just like the world and not preach sin and man's need of a savior. The gospel has to be central or we go into a fatal, comatose process of dying. It's the story of the church everywhere. How will we stay alive? We must keep Christ central. Okay, my second church tonight that we're talking about is the Church of Philadelphia. Now you might expect I like this church. There's many reasons I do. It's kind of like my adopted home. It's where my seminary is. Uh, It actually has a great story. 
It's the weak church with a great opportunity. It's small, but it's faithful. And because of its dependence on the greatness of the Lord, it can accomplish far more than it's capable of on its own. So the two hero churches in our mix are Smyrna and Philadelphia. So if you're going to go do a church plant, don't name it Laodicea. Don't name it Pergamum. Don't name it Thyatira. Definitely don't name it Sardis. There are Sardis Presbyterian churches. They must not have read their Bible before they chose that name. I can't figure it out. But, uh, so the point is, this is a great name. We need more Philadelphian Presbyterian churches, more Philadelphian evangelical churches, more Philadelphian congregational churches. We need more Philadelphian Lutheran churches. We need churches that reflect this church. This is one of the ones that can exist in this world that Christ would have us reflect. Now, what do we know about it? Well, you can see there's some big pillars from the church that still are there. Now, the church is gone. The church in Philadelphia and Asia Minor does not exist anymore. But the image of the pillar is important, and we'll come back as we study this letter. Now, Philadelphia, then, is in the Bible more than one way, more way than one. I, I think I told you as a child reading the Bible, I must have been about 13 or 14, I couldn't understand why Philadelphia made it in the Bible and not New York City. It made, it made no sense to me. I, I heard about New York. All, no one talked about Philadelphia. And, uh, of course, it took me a little knowledge growing. And I realized over time that Philadelphia is this ancient city in Asia Minor. But Philadelphia not only names a city, it actually describes a Christian virtue. You can find the word Philadelphia in the Greek text in Romans chapter 12. It tells us about how we ought to have brotherly love, and it uses this word. So it is a Christian virtue and an ancient city. And so in the city that William Penn named after this city, and this virtue, we have this famous bell there. You know, the shoddy British workmanship meant it cracked the first time they rang the thing, you know. So, but they repaired it. But when they repaired it and made it over again, they kept putting the same Bible verse on it. Does anybody remember what that Bible verse is? Everybody's supposed to cry it out. John Anderson, what is it? Excellent. You see it right there? <laughs> His glasses are working. <laughs> okay, okay. So we, we, we need to remember this now. This, this is a verse from the Bible on the most visible icon of the American story. And so the city named for the Bible is famous for liberty, and on the Liberty Bell is a verse from the Bible. Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Liberty is a biblical virtue, blessing, and it comes from the city a brotherly love, both of which are biblically based. It's quite remarkable, but we're not on our American history side. We're still in the Bible, so let's keep going. Now, the sixth church we're talking about in Philadelphia, what's some of its backdrop? The adjacent plain was famous for wine. So this was a, a wonderful agricultural region, and thus Philadelphia's chief pagan cult was the worship of Dionysius, the Greek god of wine, vine and wine worshipped in drunken orgies. So it wasn't a godly city by any means. Uh, sometimes you hear the name Bacchus. That's another name for this ancient god. 
And part of the way they worshipped is that they actually had professional drunken people going through the streets. They would get drunk every day as part of worshipping God. So drunkenness was a way of thanking God for the fruit of the vine. It was called the Little Athens because of its numerous temples and festivals to pagan deities. And if a man had served the city well, a column in one of the pagan temples could be uh, identified by that man's name. His name would be chiseled into it. There's examples of that where they said this was a great pillar of our city and his name was placed upon one of the pillars in the church. So the idea of a pillar is an interesting part of the Philadelphia story. It's a pagan city, hardly a Christian city as we look at it here, but uh, there's more we could say about it. Another thing, and this may be hard to read, but its basic point is this, that in Philadelphia of the ancient world, it was close to a seismic zone, which meant it had periodic earthquakes that would shake the city. And when the city would shake, do you know what people would do? They would leave the city because you got to get away from all this collapsing architectural features, all of these roofs that would collapse on you. And sometimes when an earthquake would come, the only thing that would be left standing would be pillars because the roof would collapse, but the pillars would be standing. So the imagery of pillars and staying in the city are language that you're going to hear in this description in our letter. Now let's take a look at the seven-part structure of the letter from Christ to the churches in Philadelphia. The commission and to the angel in the church in Philadelphia write, chapter 3, verse 7, a character of Christ, an element that we see of him. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. In other words, the one thing you certainly didn't want to have happen is to be locked in the building if an earthquake came. You wanted to get out of town. But he can close the door and you're safe. And you don't have to worry. Because in his city, there's security. In fact, in a city like this, when you go out and all of these pagan gods and temples are everywhere, and all this resistance is there, the Lord can open doors and advance the gospel in spite of all of the unbelief, all of the resistance, because God is opening the door for the gospel to move forward. In fact, like King David, who has the key, an image that comes from Isaiah 22, 22, Christ will use the image of the key as well, where he says, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The key is a symbol of authority. When someone gives you the key to the church building, the pastor says you're trustworthy, right? He said, I'll trust you with the key to the church. When you go to a business and they give you the key, they say, you're safe. When you're an honored citizen in celebration, they might give you the key to the city. The idea is, we trust you here everywhere. Keys are a symbol of trust and power. And the idea here is that the Lord has the key of King David that's been blessed to us. Remember, David has a dynasty that will never end. A temple that he was going to build that would last forever, a throne that could never be removed. There'd be one upon it. It was absolutely secure. And this is the promise that this church has that is facing all of this ungodliness, all of these earthquakes, all of these resistance. You have a promise because God is the one who has the key to open a door of the advance of the gospel and close so things will not harm or not happen. This image of then of Philadelphia was taken by Penn for two reasons. One, it was a brand new city. It was weak. It was small. 
but at the same time he wanted to be a city where brothers loved each other. And that's where the name of the city actually came from in the first instance. Uh, the name of the city was built upon the fact of a king who had a younger brother that was absolutely loyal to him. And so to honor that younger brother, he said, I'm going to call my new city Brothers Love. Remember the most dangerous person for a king in a dynastic situation? It's his younger brother. The king dies, the younger brother takes over. This was a symbol of love. So for Penn, it was religious liberty. For the Christian, we all are in a family of faith with a father who secures us. Now here's the commendation that the risen Christ gives to this church in ancient Philadelphia, verses 8 to 10 of chapter 3. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, the key of King David, the key of King Jesus, the key of God's providential purposes, has opened a door and no one can stop the advance of the gospel because you are following its witness. I know your works and I'm giving you, based upon your working with the gospel, witnessing, preaching it, no one can stop you. I know that you have but little power. This isn't about how strong you are. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You've been faithful to the scriptures. You've honored Christ. And so it doesn't matter who's opposed to you because my word is powerful. The name of Christ is powerful because you're preaching it, witnessing it, living it. No one can stop the advance of the gospel. It will go forward if you continue to use it. Behold, I make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, you'll remember that uh, there was that image of the Jewish wealthy people in cities like here were, were doing business, and one of the ways to protect themselves against persecution was to point out Christians. Look at those Christians, what they're doing. It's called deflection been a part of the world for years. And when we went to the story of Polycarp, it says the people who were helping to burn Polycarp were not just the Romans, but the Jews that wanted to stop the advance of Christianity. Now, this is the ancient world. I'm not saying it reflects anything today. It's not anti-Semitic. It's a historical struggle and a reality of the religious tensions of early Christianity. But the point here is that these are not even real Jews. These are people who are using their religious connections so that they might take advantage of those that they were trying to persecute. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. What's it saying? There are going to be those who are your enemies who are going to try to stop the advance of the gospel. And because of the triumph of the gospel, they're going to have to come and say, boy, something special is going on with you and letting it go forward. I heard a great example of that recently. Uh, Maybe you've heard of uh, Transworld Radio. Have any of you heard of TWR, Transworld Radio? Okay. Great gospel preaching uh, radio station. They have one of their great headquarters in Monte Carlo. Uh, Bob DeNoyer, we were at dinner when we talked about that, right? You remember what happened? Hitler had created one of the great radio stations to bring his propaganda to the world. That's why it was built. And guess who got to use it? Christian people, not Nazis. And that's the place where the gospel's been preached all over Africa, all over Asia, all over Europe, built by Adolf Hitler for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
Isn't that an amazing story? Well, that's the point. Those that oppose the gospel are going to eventually advance its message because the gospel cannot be stopped. And yet we unilaterally disarm ourselves by saying, well, we've got to be like everybody else. The gospel's not favorable. Well, the world hates the gospel. It doesn't matter. Preach it, teach it, live it. Be persecuted for it. Suffer for it if you have to. But this is where the blessings ultimately come. And that's what the church in Philadelphia did. It just stayed faithful. And you know what? It doesn't take a lot of strength to go through an open door. Have you ever noticed that? I've helped a lot of very frail people in through an open door. You don't have to be strong. You just need to be willing to to step out in faith. Jesus opens the door when the gospel goes forward. So because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you didn't give up, when everybody said, get rid of the gospel, you've got to get with the times, you've got to compromise, you have to do this or that. Because you've been patient to continue to be gospel-centered, preaching the word, loving Christ, lifting up his name, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, what that's basically saying is you will be persecuted because of the gospel, but the Lord is going to protect his people that share his name. And that's, there's so many wonderful stories. If you go through mission stories all around the world of people who said, I will take a risk for Christ's sake. And the Lord preserves them, sometimes miraculously, because they're bringing the gospel forward. That is the center of the church of Christ. The commendation here. <clears throat> so it's interesting. If you look at this, uh, it says... I know your work, see, I see, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. This little strength is something the Lord delights in honoring. Notice this uh, writer here by the name of Harkrider who says, conversely, it is also an encouraging fact to realize that others may regard us as insignificant and unimportant, but the Lord knows even what the poor widow does. The great, the widow's might is the smallest gift ever given to Christ, and it's the most famous one ever given to Christ. Isn't that great? You, there are no little people in the kingdom of God when it comes to gospel work. Everybody's significant because no matter how small we are, if we're going through the open door of Christ, bringing the gospel, we are making a difference for eternity. All of us have the significance of advancing Christ's work. Do you remember the story? Too many soldiers, I need fewer to win this battle. I'm sorry, the battle of Midian has to be won by just a handful of people. So I only want the kind of people who lap the water a certain way. Those silly people, that's all I need. God doesn't need a lot of big, fancy, powerful people. He needs people who will say, I'm weak, but I see the open door. And in faith, I'm going to step through it and make a difference. Okay, so the, notice the condemnation. Like Smyrna, the church of Philadelphia receives no threat or warning from Christ. As weak as they are, they are faithful. They're using what they have to go through the open door Christ has given. And he says, that's what I want you to do. Oh, how we need Philadelphia churches. Faithful to get the message out. The Lord corrects them by saying this, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Don't let up. Keep going. 
Wait until Christ comes. Our job is not done until Jesus says it's done. Some of you say, it's time for me to retire now. I've done my part. Well, maybe you retire from one ministry to do something else. Find a new place to keep the gospel going. We don't stop. We don't get tired. We find we can't do that anymore. Well, then what do we do next? We're in this until Jesus comes. That's our correction. Don't get tired of well-doing. Persevere. Continue in your role. And the challenge. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. There's that pillar. Remember, we talked about that. I make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Remember, we've got to run from the city, the earthquakes. No, you're coming into place, a pillar that's permanent, a place that cannot be shaken, a city whose builder and maker is God, reserved in heaven forever for God's people. That's where we're going. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. To the challenger, isn't that interesting? It says you're going to be a pillar in God's temple. You'll never leave it. You're absolutely secure. And I don't know what these heavenly tattoos are, but they're wonderful. I never wanted a tattoo except for these right here. I pray the Lord will let me have the name of God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and then even the new name that Jesus has. He says, I'm going to identify you with myself. Now, how that's given, I don't know, but the point is you're absolutely committed. The person who hears the challenge of the Philadelphian church is one who's absolutely the honored member of the heavenly kingdom, and it all comes down to being faithful to Christ's name and his word. doesn't mean you're powerful or famous. It means you're faithful to Christ. You endure with the gospel. And notice... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear to hear that tonight? Are you willing to say, Lord, make me a member of the church in Philadelphia? That's what I want to be. Okay, I need to conclude and give some examples. Uh, before I do that, I want to remind you that the church is called the pillar and the ground of truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. Uh, Paul speaks about James, Peter, and John as seemingly pillars of the church in Galatians 2.9. And we're told that that's what God would have us be. Just like in ancient Philadelphia, pillars had people's names carved into them. We have the privilege, by God's grace, of being a permanent, celebrated part of God's kingdom by being weak but faithful with the gospel and His word. Faithful wherever God puts us to proclaim His word, to honor Christ, to share His name. Okay, some examples. I've seen Philadelphia churches, I think, all over the world. Uh, for example, Wales, you know that part of the United Kingdom? Uh, that church had a great revival many years ago, and it nearly has become a silent, dead church. But you know there's churches being planted all over Wales now. You know how? Because of the Korean revival. The Korean church has come to do mission work in Wales. And they're seeing the birth of hundreds of churches all across Europe, and starting at where that re revival once was. Isn't that kind of amazing? Korea coming to Wales to evangelize, planting churches. There are hundreds of new churches. And what are they doing? They're just saying, we believe the gospel, so we're going to tell people about the Lord. You think of the cross-cultural challenge that they have. I can't believe it, but there it is. God's blessing this work. It's being led actually by a Westminster graduate. I won't talk about his name. Uh, there's a, 
An interesting example, did you know that the Protestant church was suppressed for centuries in Spain? Remember you've heard of the Spanish Inquisition? The attempt to destroy its witness? Well, a few years ago I had the chance to be in Spain and I met a, a man by the name of David Estrada, a Westminster graduate. And he was, uh, he had Cornelius Van Til for his apologetics professor. And he went to Spain and in Spain to get a college job, it was totally on that uh, kind of public servant testing system. Whoever gets the highest score gets the job. It wasn't who you know, it's you scored the highest. He scored the highest. A Westminster graduate got the highest score on a philosophy exam that year in Spain. He became a professor of aesthetics at the University of Barcelona. He's taught there for years. And along the way I met him and he said, you know, as a Protestant teaching in Spain, I am absolutely the odd man out. But they couldn't get rid of me because of the selective service exam for philosophy, I won. Thank God for Westminster's good education, right? So here he is in this job and he said, I, as I began to do research, I discovered all these archival things about the Spanish Inquisition, what it did to persecute Protestants and how it suppressed the church. And he said, it's time that this news came out and we need to tell it. And so he's begun to translate Latin documents, ancient Spanish documents, and get them into print. And so there's now a, no, a whole new body of literature he's launched, which is called the Spanish Reformation. No one ever thought there was one. He's, I, he's demonstrated it, and he showed their works. They're being translated. And in this age, it's fascinating that the king of Spain actually decorated him just a few years ago because of his unique scholarship. Now this is one of the weakest men possible. No practical Protestant church. But he just said, I am a Christian. I'm going to be faithful. And he did what he did and it made it all the way to the attention of the King of Spain. And the books are being translated. I, I could tell you a lot about that. It's a wonderful example of a weak church. In Poland, remember the communist uh, period when the church was being suppressed? It's been suppressed by the Nazis and then by the communists. The Russians came in and put it down. And once that freedom finally came in, I had an opportunity through one of the men in my church who is a physician who uh, met a, a physician from Poland. They fell in love. Be careful who you translate for. It might change your life as she was translating for him. And uh, so she, I helped do the wedding in Poznan, uh, Poland. And while I was there, I met the priest. Now, normally priests don't get along with Protestants very well. You know, they're kind of afraid of us. And, but he said, I want you to do the service. In fact, you've got this little book that's a Bible study survey. Can I have the privilege to translate that into Polish for the work of our church? I said, why do you want this? He said, well, during our time of persecution, when they were trying to kill us, when they were trying to destroy priests and shut down churches, we found our only hope was in the living Christ, and we love the Bible here. We need to know the gospel. That's the weak church, and guess what? That church is alive. It's bringing gospel hope under the Roman Catholic name, but they're teaching the scriptures. It's an amazing story. Uh, I could go on with other examples, but I can't cover them all. So let me jump to the African-American experience in greater Philadelphia. Uh, we all know about storefront churches. We all know about ghettos. We all know about the persecution uh, of Christians in gang-infested communities. And it just so happened back in the administration of George W. Bush, 
There was a scholar at the University of Pennsylvania named John DiUlio. He was a Democrat. He was identified by President Bush to launch for him his faith-based initiatives because he was a great social scientist. So he brought in a Democrat into a Republican administration. Well, an, a visiting professor working for him by the name of uh, Byron Johnson came to help him, and he ended up coming to the church I was pastoring. Byron Johnson said, Pete, you need to realize something extraordinary is going on in Philadelphia. I said, what? He said, well, we're beginning under the faith-based initiatives to look at all of this city uh, uh, spreading out of storefront churches and everything else, and a major research project is being done for the faith-based initiatives. And we've discovered now that all of these humble, inadequate, broken-down churches throughout Philadelphia are the lifeblood that keeps the city from imploding. So we figure that every year these non-governmentally supported, self-sustained, urban poor churches are giving over a billion dollars of social services to the city of Philadelphia. It is the backbone of why Philadelphia survives. The government could never do what they do. Isn't that great? That was under a presidential administration by a great scholar. Well, as a result of that, I had the chance to get meet, welcome President Bush to Philadelphia a couple times to see the launching of a program called Amachi Wilson Good, the first African-American mayor of Philadelphia who is a Baptist minister, uh, helped launch a new program, Amachi. What is it? It is a program to take children whose parents are incarcerated. Can you imagine this? A child whose mom and dad are both in prison. What do you do with them? And go to churches and say, we need to put churches to care for these kind of kids, after-school programs, uh, foster care. Amachi is now in many states across the country, born out of Philadelphia, out of this research. And as a result of that, one, my associate pastor actually took in an African-American child as a foster child. And instead of him going the way of drug addiction and damage, he's now a well-educated young Christian man. The power of the gospel working in here. Greater Exodus Baptist Church is, uh, is a church I've worked a lot with, and the pastor there is a man named Herb Lusk. Herb Lusk used to be the running back for Dick Vermeil and the Philadelphia Eagles. Do you remember Dick Vermeil? Maybe you've heard his name before. Well, Dick Vermeil uh, had Herb Lusk at the height of his career, scoring touchdowns. And Herb Lusk came in one day to Dick Vermeil and said, You know what? Jesus has called me to be a preacher. I'm leaving. He said, you can't leave. We're winning Super Bowls around here. We need you. Now, he already knew he was a Christian man because every time he scored a touchdown, he got down on his knees and prayed. He was called the running tailback. He started that prayer life that you see. He was the first guy to do that in professional football. And so Herb Lusk left everything. He went to the Richard Allen district of Philadelphia, the most broken down part of the city, to an old Baptist church it had, he said the first time he preached there, it had 20 barrels in the sanctuary collecting the rain that was dripping from the roof. And that church now is one of the dynamos in the city. It started a housing project, a charter school, a crisis pregnancy center, a banking program for people, a welfare-to-work program that gets people off of welfare and does it. In the meantime, it's spreading the gospel. And I got to go with Herb Lusk, guess what? To go to Kenya, Africa, 
as part of the Bush administration because we're trying to say, how can the African-American church go back and take care of the AIDS orphans that are everywhere? Okay, this is a Philadelphia church that really is a Philadelphia church. Out of their weakness, being faithful with the gospel, going into where nobody wanted to go, beginning to change the world. Now, when I got to Kenya, I think Kenya's on my list here. It was Herb that got me there. I still remember when the plane landed. Uh, we uh, got to a first place where we were going, and there's soil, and Herb Lusk began to weep like a child as he got on his hands and knees and picked up the soil and said, Africa, Africa. He was thinking of all the centuries of his forebears that had been brought against their will to America to be slaves. And now he's become an NFL football player, and now a church planner, and now a guy with the President of the United States blessing coming over to Kenya to try to do something about the AIDS orphans. This is an amazing story. I'm watching this before my eyes. And while I was there, we went to one lady's house. I don't remember her name, but an African lady. Her house was filled with children running all over. A little house. Must have had 25 kids running around in it. And we said, uh, what's going on? She said, well, every time she finds another AIDS infant left in the street, she brings it home and raises them for Jesus. She has no power. She has nothing. But that lady literally has been raising 20 children that were left to die because their parents had died of AIDS. There was nobody to care for them. I, a vision I can still not get out of my head was going to the dumps in Nairobi, Kenya. You know, Nairobi is a big city, and you can imagine, why would I go to the dumps? Because all around on it, as I looked, there were children going through the garbage looking for something to eat at the end of the night. They said, all of these children are orphans. They live in the garbage dumps every day. And this is the only way they can survive. Who is going to bring hope to them? Who's going to bring the gospel to them? I went to a prison, and I saw some people that were in prison because of crimes in, in Kenya. And uh, one of the things that I remember seeing there was a man who said, one of the great things about the prisons is that the gospel is preached here. All these men were once criminals, but they're now all Christians. And what we do, we've trained them. They now have work. They're beginning to make furniture as convicts to bless the society in the name of Christ. And I said, well, what do they do? Well, they, they, build, they build the furniture during the week. They set it up on Sunday for the worship service so people can come and worship. Then they ship it off, and during the week they make more and set it up a new, new pews every week. And I said, that's beautiful. Would you like to have pews that were your own? He said, yeah. So I went back to my church, and I said, wouldn't you love to invest in a sanctuary that is taking rehabilitated criminals from the garbage dumps of Nairobi and giving them a place to worship every Sunday in the name of Christ. Man, that check came in that same day. And I was, had the thrill of seeing a church launched out of a prison so that they could do more work to advance the gospel. These are Philadelphia churches. They have no power. They have nothing. But when the gospel goes there, it changes the world. It makes things different. Uh, I could go on with stories. I like the story in Zaire. Zaire, in my, in my first pastor, well, my pastorate in Bryn Mawr, a lady who had been in uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse's ministry for many years came to my ministry late in life, and then she passed away. 
she left everything she had for missions. She left it to our church and said, do something. That was not a lot. She was a, a, a single lady, but she had been faithful. And it was about maybe $200,000. That's a lot of money, but, you know, what can you do with it? Well, half of what we did as our missions committee said, let's divide it in half. She loved Dr. Boyce, the successor of, of uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. So let's set up the James Montgomery Boyce Chair of Theology at Aix-en-Provence Seminary in France because Dr. Boyce loved that school. Now, $100,000 doesn't get you an endowed chair. I want you to know that. But it was a seed gift. Well, here we are 20 years later. It's a fully endowed chair. That lady's seed gift has turned into a fully endowed chair. As people have heard the story, they said, we want to help. And that's there. Now, the other half of it, we said, we need, she worked in medical offices through the years. And there was a missionary that we had from Zaire that was working in the, the former Belgian Congo doing medical missions and, and seminary education and right in the heart of equatorial Africa. And we said, what are we going to do with this other part? He said, how about if we set up a clinic and we'll put her name, her name was Ruth Davenport. Let's set up the Ruth Davenport Clinic in Zaire. And we asked the missionary when he was home, he said, why, we could do that. It will be a birth clinic. And so we had a picture and we had sent it over there and of course, you know, Zaire's been filled with all kinds of civil war and conflict for years. And so I got to see the missionaries maybe just a few years ago. This is maybe 15 years after that. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, that clinic is still operating. The war has never touched it. And everybody knows the name of Ruth Davenport. She's the lady that loves the babies in Zaire. Isn't that wonderful? That's a Philadelphia church, not, not our church. It's just simply saying somebody said we're going to make a difference for Christ's sake. And here it is. It's touching people, and the gospel goes out. Any mother that comes in to have a child has the gospel presented to her. And these are people that are learning not to be part of the AIDS epidemic, living a new way, caring for their children. The gospel is making a difference. I've got to stop, but I, I love these stories. So can you put up with me for a few more minutes? Okay. Well, let me tell you about the story in Mongolia. I'll, I'll stop with this one. Every one of these have 15-minute or more stories, so I can't tell them all. I'll stop with this one. But I got all this ready just so I could tell you these stories. John told me I had to. I really wanted to, so here you are. Uh, how did I get to Mongolia? I, I think I told a couple of the men in a Bible study a week or two ago, so if you were there, you've heard the story. But... Our first Ph.D. graduate from Westminster was a man by the name of Duke Oh. Uh, he went to uh, South Korea. He became a president of a seminary and uh, was leading well. And then, because of Korean connections with Mongolia, he was invited to the University of Ulaanbaatar. Now, that is the capital city of Mongolia. Now, remember, Mongolia is this big country right in the middle of China and the Soviet Union. It's the buffer state between the two countries. They keep, so they're, they're, they don't want to be Chinese. The Mongolians and the Chinese have been at war for uh, millennia. And they don't want to be really Russians, but, they're, you know, so, but they use a Cyrillic alphabet. So you know they're closer to Russia, and there they are. So here he is in this university. When I got there, he said, I, I want you to come. I want you to come and see what God is doing here. And in God's uh, grace, the door opened up for me to travel. So there I am in Ulaanbaatar. They take me to the Capitol building and they say, now you remember our great hero of Mongolia 
this Genghis Khan. I said, oh yeah, I've heard about him, right? <laughs> so they take me into this beautiful Capitol building, and there in a very important shrine is the throne of Genghis Khan, still preserved. And they said, this is where he used to sit when he ruled over Mongolia. And by the way, he was conquering the rest of the world. Remember, the Mongolians conquered Europe and China and all over the place. And this was, this was their heart of the kingdom. So quite remarkable. So here I am, and uh, I'm being invited now to lecture at the University of Ulaanbaatar by a Westminster graduate who's now the president. And he is not able to speak Mongolian. He has to work through a translator, but they're building a university. They need a scholar. Koreans are close enough to help them. So there he is. And I'm invited. And I say, well, tell me what's going on here. He said, well, this is totally a secular university. Remember, we're between two atheistic countries. Uh, the, the doors have opened for Western influence, and the country has decided to let missionaries come in, but nothing in government, nothing in education. It has to be totally atheistic and secular. And they said, okay, well, you've invited me to speak. What am I supposed to speak about? He said, well, let's make it clear now. Uh, you can't mention God. You can't mention Christ. You can't mention the Bible. You can't mention the church. You can't mention anything about religion. Okay, you know what? I have nothing else to say. That's all I've ever talked about my whole life. That's it. And now I'm, he said, and I've invited 500 students to hear your lecture tomorrow. Okay, so, you know, that evening as I was in my room, I was sweating bullets. I said, what in the world am I going to do? Because when he told me that, he said, and if you do, you will get me fired. Okay, Lord, what am I going to do? So that night I wrestled and I said, oh, I don't know what to say. And I finally remembered that phrase from Francis Schaeffer. Maybe you remember it. It's called pre-evangelism. And he often said there are certain great questions that philosophers ask. If you can get people to begin to ask them, it will lead them to a willingness to think about a biblical answer. And I thought, well, that's all I can do. So because I have a philosophy background. You can't study theology without studying philosophy, too. They go together as uh, one side of faith, the other side of unbelief, right? And so the, the, uh, the lecture I gave went something like this. You are now opening yourself up to the Western world. Great translator translating this to 500 students. And I said, you're going to ask questions like, what is ultimate reality? We call that metaphysics. You know, in the West, nobody knows what is ultimate reality. They're going to ask questions of ontology. What is being? What is real being? Is there an ultimate being? Nobody knows. It's there. We debate it. There's no answer. You're going to talk about how do you know. We call it epistemology. How do you know for sure what you know you know? And maybe it's just guesswork. How are you sure? Well, nobody knows. There's all these theories. And I gave examples. I said, how about the issue of aesthetics? What makes something beautiful? Well, nobody knows. They think it's this. They think it's that. Well, what about the issue of politics? Well, there's all different types of government, as you know. Everybody debates these things. Well, what about ethics? What makes something right or wrong? Nobody knows. We debate them. They go back and forth. And uh, I went through the whole litany of the great questions of philosophy, saying, here's some examples. They're debated. And my conclusion was, if you're going to get to know the West, you need to realize we like to ask big questions and nobody knows the answers, and we just debate them. But I think you ought to ask these questions because it's good. And, I th and I, when I finished, I said, boy, that's the biggest waste of a lecture I've ever done. You know, I'm not a philosophy professor. I'm glad I can talk. But that's not why I came here. 
And so I, I finished my time. And then a student, I think it was the second question, stood up and said, Professor, perfect English. So it's being translated back into Mongolian now. Perfect English translated into Mongolian. Question was, you've raised all the great questions of the West and you've said that nobody has any answers and they all give competing answers. Well, how about you? Do you have an answer to these questions? What is your philosophy? Now I was really scared. <laughs> I, I looked at the president and he went like this. She asked. So I can say to you, I preached the gospel for the first time at the University of Ulaanbaatar not knowing I'd get the chance, but I was asked to by a providential question when I had nothing to say. That was a Philadelphia church moment. I was utterly weak. I did not know what to do. I am not a trained missionary. I was not allowed to speak, and the Lord let me speak. Now that's one story. That would have been enough. But you know, as that all finished up, I, I left, and I don't know what God's going to do with all that, but there it was. I was leaving, and I was invited to go to a gathering, a pastor's gathering. Isn't this interesting? The gospel has been in open in Mongolia for about 25 or 30 years. And so now there are something like 50,000 professing Christians in Mongolia, atheist country. They don't have a formal denomination. There are all kinds of there. They've let the gospel in. They just have to stay out of government. It needs to be private. So these pastors are all doing just personal evangelism. And they invited me, said, well, come to this pastor's gathering, and you can bring a greeting from Westminster Seminary or talk about something. And as I was walking along, I bumped into a man who came up to me, and they introduced me to him. And I won't try to say his name. It has about 60 letters in each name. It's way too complicated for me to pronounce. It's one of those really long Mongolian names. And I said, well, it's nice to meet you, sir. Who, who are you? He said, well, I have just returned from Oxford University in England. I've just completed my Ph.D. I said, you did? How did you get there? He said, well, when the gospel came to Mongolia just a few years ago, a group called YWAM. Have you ever heard of them before? Youth with a Mission were there, and I was led to Christ. And they found that I had an eager interest to know more, so they put me on their world cruise and tours, and I was sharing the gospel as one of the first Mongolian converts. Learned English. They realized I was a good student, so they sent me off to seminary. He didn't go to Westminster, unfortunately, but we forgive him about that. And because he did so well at seminary, they sent him off to Oxford University to get a doctorate. And so he had a doctorate in which he mastered both Greek and Hebrew. And he said, I have just returned today, just today, walking here, and I am just beginning now my vision so that I can translate for the very first time into the Mongolian language, the Old Testament and the New Testament from the original languages. It's never been done before. Now, we have a translation of the Bible in Mongolian, but it's done from English. And he says it makes no sense. You know, all the metaphors and figures of speech, they, they don't translate. He said, the Bible is not understandable. We need an original language into the language of the people. I said, wow, that's an amazing thing. How are you going to do it? He said, I don't know. I'm going to have to train about 20 people in Greek and Hebrew, and I'm going to need lots of books, and I need to begin the process. He said, wow. Guess what? Westminster's really good at books. 
what, what do you need? And he gave me a list of about 50 books that they needed to do their language training. And I said, listen, I promise that when I get back, I'm going to send you the biggest love care package you've ever had of books. So a few months later, I got the word back, the books have safely arrived. Wouldn't you know, about two years later, the American Bible Society that was up in New York City, had started in Philadelphia over 200 years ago, decided to come back to its home city of Philadelphia. So we welcomed them back, and I was coming to help launch their 200th anniversary. They asked me to talk about the Bible and the founding. Who would have thought they'd ask anybody like me to do that? Well, that's my hobby, as you know. So at any rate, I'm there, and guess who I bump into in a hotel? As I'm go checking in for the night, it's this exact man, this guy. I said, what are you doing here? He said, well, we're starting to translate the Bible, and we need to have people who will help us get it in print. It's very costly to print the Bible. And I'm coming here to the American Bible Society that should just moved to Philadelphia so that we can get the Bible started. Well, lo and behold, I said, listen, I'm praying for you. Well, the Bible is now being printed by the American Bible Society. And I had to laugh because the Philadelphia story, which I'm part of, which is I'm just trying to get the Bible out. I'm just trying to tell about Jesus. I got to preach the gospel, and then whether God meant me to do that or not, and I think he did, what he really wanted me to do is to meet the guy who's going to translate the Bible into Mongolian. And I gave him the books. And then I can welcome, God had a sense of humor. He said, I'm going to let you meet him on the day he shows up in Philadelphia, and you won't even know it. Out of all the millions of people and all the busy schedules, you're going to get to meet him and say, see, I told you I'm doing the work. That's an open door that nobody can close. I couldn't open it. I'm too weak. I didn't know anything about it. But that's the thrill of our being part of God's kingdom. We don't have to be powerful. We just need to say, Lord, if this is what you've called me to do, I will do it. You know, that is my method of ministry. I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. But I said, Lord, it looks like I need to go through this door, so I will. I urge you to do the same thing with the gospel. And God does above and beyond all that we can ask or think. That's the promise of the church in Philadelphia. God does great things because he opens the door. We said, I'll go in. Okay, I'd love to tell you about the rest of these, but that gives you a little taste. Let's conclude in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to see how you take humble people, people that are inadequate, but because they have a heart to get your word and the name of Christ known, you do things that they're unable to do. Lord, help this church, the Philadelphian church. No, not the church in the United States in Pennsylvania, but every church where people love the name of Christ and love your word, to simply go through the open doors you've given us and say, Lord, here we are, send us. You can do what we can't do. We are weak, we're small, we're inadequate, but Lord, you can do it. Lord, if we're part of a church that's dying because the gospel's not being preached, Lord, there's some that are still alive. May we be those people that still have life. We let the good news of Jesus shine forth. And Lord, would you help it to make a difference? So we praise you for all this. We thank you for the honor of serving. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's sing one song. Thanks for letting me go along. I was excited to tell that story tonight. Thank you for letting me tell you. And aren't we excited to hear those? Amen.
293. Would you stand up, please, as we close? 293.